Good morning, everybody. Um, as Jeff said, my name's Louise, and I'm starting us off in week four of our series, Good News at Last, and it's unpacking this first chapter of Mark's gospel. And in this series, we're kind of trying to get a sense of who Jesus is as we're watching him, as we're learning from him. Who is this man? What kind of a leader is he? And we are studying his words and his actions. Two weeks ago, Alan and I with the kids were privileged to be at the Cape Town Stadium for the Roger Federer and Nadal match. There we go. We had the cheapest seats you could buy, so we were way at the top. I think that photo is even zoomed in because we were like way up top. But it was an incredible experience. And um, my, my stick-out moment was this moment when Sia Colisi walked out of the tunnel. You could tell someone was coming because the photographers were all waiting there for, for whoever was coming. Out he comes, and the crowd erupted, and he gave Federer that Springbok jersey. It was this completely magical kind of experience. And I'm quite intrigued by Sia Colisi. I don't know about you. I'm not a massive rugby fan, but I did watch the World Cup last year, and I have been watching him as um, kind of getting to know what kind of a man is he, what kind of a leader is he. He intrigues me a bit. Um, maybe you can relate to that, I don't know. And um, so what happened was he had this interview on the camera, and then the camera kind of moved off him and back to the tennis court because the tennis players were warming up. And so I took out my binoculars, okay, and zoomed in as much as I could, and I, and I watched him, and I followed him as he moved off the tennis court and to his seat, and it was interesting to watch him because he stopped and he talked to people and he signed autographs and he took some selfies with people. And it was really cool to see how he, he didn't rush past. He took the time to interact with people. And there was this beautiful moment. Um, there was this one lady sitting right next to the court. I don't know if you saw a photograph, but she was holding up the sign that said this was her 100th birthday present. She'd been given these courtside tickets for her 100th birthday. And so she was proudly holding up her sign. And so he stopped to interact with his family and talked to them and took a photo. And then he went to go fetch something for her. It looked like a gift from wherever. And he brought it back to her and shook her hand. And it was just this beautiful kind of unhurried interaction with people. Something similar is happening in the book of Mark. Mark is kind of revealing to us story by story, paragraph by paragraph, who Jesus is. Remember, we're in chapter one, so it's just the beginning. And those people who would have held this first manuscript of Mark chapter one, they didn't necessarily know what was going to happen next like we do. And so Mark is revealing Jesus to them little bit by little bit. Imagine that we're in a pitch black room and it's so dark you can't even kind of see your hand in front of your face. Mark is the writer who's standing by the light switch. And that light switch is on a dimmer switch, and he's turning it up little bit by little bit every week as we explore, as we read these stories, as we hear what Jesus is doing. He's making that light a little bit brighter, and we're getting a sense as he reveals to us who Jesus is, as we watch how Jesus interacts with people, and we watch what he says, and we watch what he does. And so if you're here this morning and you're still exploring who Christ is, I trust it's going to be a really helpful week because as Mark makes the light brighter, I hope that for you, you also get a sense of who Jesus is, what kind of man he is, what kind of leader he is. So what's happened so far, especially for those of you who are just joining us today, the chapter opens with a strong statement about what this book, the Gospel of Mark, is all about. It says it's the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. 
we met John the Baptist, and then we saw Jesus getting baptized. He goes off into the wilderness, and then he comes back, and he chooses his disciples, those who are going to follow him very closely. And that's what we saw happening last week. And he recruits these disciples, and then he starts training them. And so we must remember that while we're watching Jesus, everything that he's doing, what he's teaching, how he, how he spends his time, his healing, his relaxing, his socializing, his teaming, all of it is training his disciples because he is teaching them what life in the kingdom looks like and what the kingdom is all about. So on the one hand, he's got this public ministry when he's speaking to the crowds and he's teaching. And then on the other hand, he's got this kind of one-on-one ministry, this one-on-twelve ministry where he's working with this group of people and he's teaching them what it means to be in the kingdom. And so as he's training his disciples, we, as his disciples today, we also want to sit with that attitude of training We want to carefully and prayerfully read and reread the Gospels so that we can catch some of the insights and some of the lessons that those disciples would have been learning firsthand. Today's verses capture this 24-hour period in the life of Jesus, and we're going to see these snapshots of him in action, and we're going to see who he is and what are the kinds of things that he does. Our title today is that the good news is powerful. The good news is powerful, and we're going to look at three snapshots of Jesus. Jesus as a teacher, Jesus as a general, and I'm going to unpack that a little bit so we know what that means, and Jesus as healer. And we are reading from verse 21. It's on the screen, or you can follow in your Bible or on your device. They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Just then, a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, said Jesus sternly. Come out of him. The impure spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The people were all so amazed that they asked each other, what is this? A new teaching and with authority. He even gives orders to impure spirits and they obey him. News about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever. They immediately told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hand and helped her up. The fever left her, and she began to wait on them. That evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. Okay, so let's explore these three snapshots. The first one is Jesus as teacher. It says, they went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. So let's imagine ourselves into the story. Okay, it says they went to Capernaum. And one of the things that's so incredible about our faith is the historicity of our faith, that these are actual places that existed, and you can go and visit them today. 
Um, and last year, Luke and Lauren Harper, who head up our South Peninsula congregation, they traveled to Israel, and they took a whole lot of photos, and they've shared those with us this morning. And so here is a photo of Capernaum. It's the small kind of seaside town. It's right on the banks of the Sea of Galilee, and it would have been filled with farmers and fishermen, and it's just absolutely beautiful, unspoiled natural spaces. Look at the next one. There you'll see it's on the Sea of Galilee, and it's beautiful. And so imagine Jesus arrives here with this group of misfits. He's kind of formed this group. It's a group of people who don't know each other very well. They're getting to know each other. Maybe they wouldn't naturally have been hanging out together. They wouldn't naturally have chosen each other as friends. But here they are, and they're on their first adventure with Jesus. And it's a Sabbath, so they go into the synagogue because it's Jewish people. That's what you did on the Sabbath. And the site of the, of the synagogue is still there. There it is. There's a picture of it. It's about 300 meters from the water's edge. So imagine on a hot day, you would have had that nice, cool breeze blowing in. And the, the, the synagogue has since been updated or replaced, but they've simply built the new one right over the same spot. And so imagine that's where it would have been. Um, thinking of its size, it's about the same size as the small hall across the parking lot. And so picture yourself here in the synagogue as Jesus begins to teach. And he teaches like no one has ever taught before. It says the audience are amazed at what he is saying. Some translations use the word astonished. It literally means to be in a panic because they have never heard anybody teach like this before. Now, in this particular snapshot, Mark doesn't tell us what Jesus is talking about. So we don't know if he's talking about money or family or forgiveness. We, we, we're not told. And in a sense, it seems like Mark doesn't want us so much to focus on the content of what he's saying, because there's going to be lots of opportunity for that in the verses that follow. Rather, he wants us to focus on the teacher, not the message, but the messenger. What he does tell us is that no one had ever taught like this before. And remember where we are. We're in a synagogue. So those in the synagogue would have had other teachers. They would have been exposed to teaching before. They're familiar with it. The synagogue is the place where believers gather, and the scribes or the rabbis would teach from the Torah and give their interpretation of the, of the Torah. But Jesus didn't teach like those scribes or those rabbis. Something about his teaching is more powerful. It says people were arrested by the sheer force of his words. It was different to the teachers of the law. They would have spoken more intellectually. You know, they would need to back up what they were saying with scripture, or maybe by referring to past rabbis and famous quotations that they had said. But Jesus, when he teaches, he says things like, you have heard it said, but I say to you. And 80 times in the gospels, we have this phrase, Jesus says, I tell you the truth. Because he speaks with profound conviction. The scripture says he taught as one who had authority. That word authority, it's the Greek word, exousia. And it means to have power. He's got mental power. He's got physical power. He has influence. The one dictionary describes it as this. The power of him whose will and commands must be submitted to by others. Must be obeyed. And so we did this authority come from? The other rabbis, they, their authority would rest in the Torah. That was their source of authority. But Jesus is different. Remember in week two, when we looked at Jesus' baptism, Bruce referred to it this morning. It said that a voice from heaven came and it said, you are my son whom I love. 
with you I am well pleased. And Jesus' authority comes from being the son of the father. It's a different kind of authority because this authority resides in him. It's who he is. And he preaches out of that. He teaches out of that. He ministers out of that authority. And so it's unique. And then we also know that Jesus is human, so he understands the human condition. He understands what life as a human is all about, but he's the son of the Father. And so he has an unmatched revelation of God. No one else can speak about God like the son of the Father can speak. And he brings those two things together in a way that makes his teaching powerful. And Mark wants us to know that if we were in that synagogue that day, we wouldn't have been distracted on our phones. We would have switched our phones off to listen to what he was saying. Or maybe we would have turned on the voice recorder to capture what Jesus was saying because we knew that these were words we would want to listen to over and over again. When Jesus taught, lives were transformed. So what's the application for us today? I kind of thought there were three applications, and as I share them, see if you can identify with one of them. The first is our tendency to under-prioritize. So last Sunday, Ryan challenged us on how many days we had sat under the waterfall of God's Word. And so I want to ask that again today. How many times in the last week did you prioritize sitting under the teaching of Jesus? Because this passage has shown us that Jesus taught like no one else taught before. He has power in his teaching. He has authority in his teaching. And as his disciples, we need to expose ourselves to that teaching. We need to prioritize it so that we are learning from what he says and we are learning from what he does. The second is our tendency to be over-familiar. And this is the one that's really resonated with me as I've been preparing this message because I've really been challenged to about how much I pay attention to the words of Jesus, to the teachings of Jesus. Because I'm quite familiar with Scripture. Like this section of Scripture I've read, I don't know how many times. And my over-familiarity can sometimes lead me to be insensitive. And I'm a little bit numb, maybe, to the power and the transforming power of these words. In this passage, it says people were astonished. They were arrested by what Jesus was saying. And I've been thinking, well, when was the last time that I was arrested by what I've been reading? And then finally, our tendency is to pick and choose. This passage speaks to us about Jesus as an authoritative teacher. But sometimes we go through life and we cherry pick our truth. So we take a little bit from here and a little bit from there, and we're trying to construct a truth. We're trying to construct a worldview that fits with us that's comfortable with where we're at and it suits our heart and our mind and our spiritual journey. But for the people listening that day as they encounter Jesus, for us as we listen and encounter Jesus, we don't get a truth that fits us and that's comfortable and feel good. In fact, as a Christ follower, you know that sometimes when you read truth, it actually rubs you up a little bit because it challenges you and it confronts you and it's inconvenient it's uncomfortable. Why? Because Jesus is wanting to transform us. And he's not wanting to just make us a better version of ourselves. He's wanting, us, he's wanting to transform us so that we are more like the God who created us. And that's a deep work. In Jesus, we encounter a powerful teacher with a truth that transforms. And he teaches truth, but then Jesus backs it up 
in action. And so let's go on to the second snapshot as we see what happens next. Jesus as general. And maybe we aren't all kind of familiar with this military image. We know in the military world there are these ranks of authority, okay? And so there's a lieutenant and a captain and a major and a colonel, and then right at the top of all of them is a general. The general is the highest rank of all, okay? He holds superior rank. He takes precedence over all the others. And so it's a great title for us to use of Jesus. It's highly appropriate that we use that title. And in this section of Scripture, what we see is Mark is introducing us to two opponents that Jesus will face. The first is this group of religious leaders. It's the first time they've been mentioned. And they're a group that I really want to encourage you to watch over the next few weeks. Because as religious leaders, they're the ones that we assume will be closest to Jesus. But actually, we find them, over and over again, they kind of find themselves on the outside looking in. As Jesus, this king who does things in unexpected and upside-down ways, he hangs out with very unusual people, very unexpected people. And those people are more responsive and more open to Jesus than the religious leaders are. And they become the opponent against Jesus. So that's the first one. And then the second one is Satan himself. And we see this Second opponent is evil, and over and over again, we're going to watch Jesus as he clashes with evil. The Bible mentions the devil and demons and Satan and the supernatural a lot. And anything that gets that much airtime, we know that it's an important subject. C.S. Lewis, author of the famous Narnia series, probably one of the greatest, one of the great theological thinkers of the last century, he kind of described that we can make two equal and opposite mistakes when we are thinking about the devil. The first is to kind of disbelieve his existence. Lewis calls these people materialists. And so we, the materialists deny the spiritual realm. They deny the existence of it. And then on the other hand, there are those who have an unhealthy interest in the devil, in demonic activity. He calls them magicians, overly interested in the spiritual realm. And in the church, this can be prevalent, and we can kind of find ourselves on this spectrum. Either we're overly interested in the devil, and we're kind of interested in demonic activity, and we think that everything that happens, there's a demon behind it, and there's so much like happening here in the spiritual realm. And then on the other side, we can tend to, especially as Westerners, we can tend to kind of disregard the spiritual or the supernatural, and we kind of underplay the significance and the impact of what's happening in the spiritual realm. So think about a sports match, okay? I'm sure many of you have either played in a sports team or you've watched a sports team play. The team has a captain and a coach who are training them in how to play their game, but the team also has an opponent, okay? The team that they're up against. And the most important thing for that team is to train under their captain, under their coach, to focus on their game. What are their tactics and their strategies and honing their skills and developing their game? But they've got to be aware that on the other side, in complete contrast, is this opposing team who are doing everything they can to interfere with your game. And their strategies and their tactics are designed to make you lose. And so you can't go up against an opponent without considering that. And in fact, we sometimes see these sports teams who are excellent, but they don't play very well. Um, against a team if they underestimate, even if that team's weaker, sometimes they underestimate that team and they don't prepare adequately for the strategies and tactics of the team. 
Now, the Bible makes it clear that Jesus is of utmost importance. And in a sense, the analogy falls short because Jesus is the coach and he's the captain, but he's already defeated the opposing team. So victory has already been won, but the game is still being played. And the Bible teaches us how to equip ourselves in playing that game. Although the battle is won, it's still happening. And so we don't underestimate or disregard that there is an opponent And so it's a topic we're going to see over and over again in the book of Mark as Jesus encounters evil and there's that clash. And that's what's good about working through the Bible systematically is that it brings us to passages like this. So let's pick it up again, verse 23. Just then, a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit cried out, what do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, said Jesus sternly. Come out of him. The impure spirit shook the man violently, came out of him with a shriek. The people were also amazed that they asked each other, what is this, a new teaching? And with authority, he even gives orders to impure spirits, and they obey him. So it's the first of these many encounters between Jesus and evil. In a sense, our villain, Satan, has now arrived in the story. And It's Jesus' first public ministry, so it's fitting that there is this clash with evil because Mark wants to show us right from the beginning that Jesus is supreme in these situations. There's a natural conflict, there's a supernatural conflict, and he's showing us that over both those things, Jesus is supreme. The, The power of evil is not just kind of a general influence in society. Here we see evil preying on an individual. There is this man whose life has been tormented by this demon, by this presence of evil. But upon encountering Jesus, that evil spirit is exposed instantly. And Mark is showing us right from the beginning that Jesus has authority over evil. Remember, he's the general. He has superior rank. All, everything else takes, um, it, he takes precedence over all those things. And so he's showing us that in this battle, Christ is coming with supreme authority and his power is unmatched. And the demon knows who he is and he recognizes Jesus instantly. And those who are watching are completely amazed at how Jesus deals with this evil because we see Jesus moving decisively towards this evil. It says, he said sternly. In some translations, it says he rebuked the spirit. It's a Greek word, epitomeo. It's a technical term by which evil powers are brought into submission. Just through his words, the reign and desire of God is brought to bear in this situation. And so Mark is showing us the type of general he is. He is all-powerful. Evil is subject to his authority. But there's something else to understand here in that we see that he is a general who fights for people. Not just for victory, but for people. The battle between God and evil isn't like a chess game, okay? In a chess match, the pieces are kind of inconsequential. They're just pawns that are used, and it's only the outcome of the match that really matters. And in fact, that's Satan's approach, because he uses these pieces for his own selfish, destructive purposes. And he doesn't really care what happens to the pieces. They're expendable. They're used up to protect the king, But Christ, the general, comes in complete contrast because he's fighting for victory, but he's also fighting for the pieces on the board. So we see here a man who's possessed by a demon. 
In every definition, he's actually on the other team. <laughs> he belongs to Satan. And yet Jesus still comes and brings freedom to him. He's an all-powerful general fighting for victory, but fighting for the people, the pieces on the board. So I need to move on, and I recognize that a topic like this, there's so much more that we could say, and it is something that we are going to come back to in the weeks ahead. But you might want to explore this topic in more detail, and I want to refer you to our website, because a couple of years ago we did a series called Supernatural, and you can get onto the website and you can listen to that series, which unpacks it in a little bit more detail. So let's move to this final snapshot now, Jesus as healer. It says, as soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they immediately told Jesus about her. And so he went to her, took her hand, and helped her up. The fever left her, and she began to wait on them. So imagine yourself now back into the story. They finished in the synagogue, and now they're heading over to the home of Simon, who's going to later be called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. And it's a walk of about 50 meters. It's like going from here to Kids Rock to pick up your kids. And here is a photo that shows from the synagogue, kind of looking across at the church that's been built on top of this home. Again, it's a home that is known. The very place is known. And this home would have been built with these simple rock walls. You'll see them there. And then they would have been sealed off with wood or with thatch. And they're quite smallish rooms, really, and then they backed onto these shared spaces where there would have been these shared fireplaces and mills and presses, etc. So that, that kind of gives you a picture. And Jesus walks into this house, and he finds Simon's mother-in-law, who is not well. And it's the first time that Jesus has now encountered sickness in the Gospel of Mark. And what does he do? He reaches down, he takes her hand, he lifts her up, and he heals her. He's gentle, but he's completely confident in what he's doing. And Mark, again, is showing us that Jesus has power to heal. There's no manipulation. There's nothing overly dramatic happening here. In fact, like Mark almost writes it quite matter-of-factly. He went to her, took her hand, helped her up. The fever left her. And it's obvious that when Jesus moved towards sickness, things happened. If we compare this encounter with the previous one, when Jesus is dealing with evil, here we see he speaks harshly and decisively and sternly to that evil spirit. But here he is gentle as he takes this woman's hand and lifts her up. So he's still displaying the same power and authority over evil, over sickness, but there's a gentleness here. There's a, there's a compassion and an empathy here. It's almost as if his power is now activated in a very personal way, as this personal touch to this woman. And because Jesus is human, he's able to empathize with us in weakness and in sickness and in brokenness. And so again, we've seen Christ the human alongside Christ the divine. He understands pain. He understands weakness. He has lived in a body just like ours. And we know that Jesus goes on to experience severe suffering on the cross. And that's the beauty of this king that we worship, is that Jesus is not immune to pain. He knows about pain. The story continues, and we see that his healing and deliverance ministry begins. And so in verse 32, that evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door. 
And Jesus healed many who had various diseases, and he also drove out many demons. So many come. They come with sickness and brokenness, and they encounter Jesus, and they are transformed. They are changed. They are healed. And what's helpful to see here as Christ follows is how we kind of deal with these things. We deal with evil by rebuking it. The gospel also tells us how we deal with sin. We deal with sin by repenting of it. But we deal with sickness and illness by leaning into Christ for comfort and for healing. So we come to Christ, but we lean into him for different things according to what we're facing. Maybe this morning you've kind of been confronted with evil. And so you're going to lean into Christ's supremacy. You're going to lean into his power and his ability to rebuke and resist evil. Not your own authority, you rest on his authority. If you're dealing with sin this morning, then you come in repentance and you lean into Christ for forgiveness and for grace. But if you come this morning in pain and with illness and weakness, you lean into Christ for his comfort and his compassion and his ability to heal. What we learn about healing in this passage is that we see Jesus has the power to heal. We see that he seemed to care for this, this lady, and that's why he moved towards her. But he also healed her because it seems like Simon and Andrew asked him. It says they immediately told Jesus about her. I don't think they were just giving him an update on the family situation. They had just seen what he'd done in the synagogue. And so they come asking Jesus. We see Jesus approaches people and heals them. And then as the story ends, we see other people coming to Jesus, approaching him and asking for healing. And one of the ways today that we get to experience the kingdom breaking in is when we pray for healing and we ask for God to come and do as he did in those days. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And we pray for God's healing to break through because he's here. As I close my message, I want us to watch um, a, a story of a young lady in our congregation. It's a story that we showed at Christmas time, but many of you would have been away. And it just ties in really beautifully with some of the things that we've been talking about this morning. And so we're going to watch Michaela's story. My name is Michaela Jacobs, and this is my story. I am 16 years old. I love gymnastics, swimming, ballet, jazz, dancing, and hanging out with my friends. My parents have been taking my sister and I to church for most of our lives. It was when I was asked to consider becoming an Ignite leader in 2015 that I really started personally placing my trust in God, and my faith became more real and not just an extension of my parents' belief. In 2018, I started high school, and things changed. Where before I had lots of friends and activities, my new school didn't seem to provide either. I began to get badly bullied, and without my friends, I felt lonely and vulnerable. The bullying had got so bad that I ended up missing some months of school. After some of the toughest moments I'd experienced, we decided to get me into another school. Even after I got this fresh start, I knew I was facing having to repeat the grade due to my missed months of the year. The one thing that kept me going throughout this ordeal was my sport. I was working hard and putting in many extra hours to perfect my technique for competitive rhythmic gymnastics. But while training for the rhythmic national gym games, I injured my spine, bruising all the vertebra and slipping one of the discs. On top of how bad school life had been that year, it was losing my favorite sport and all the hard work that I'd put in that year made me feel most dark and hopeless. In my frustration and anger, I pushed God away too. How could he take the one thing I felt I had 
after everything else had been taken. My dad mentioned what was happening to me to one of his squash partners, who was also a pastor at the church. The pastor asked if he and his wife could pray for me. So one Sunday after church, they prayed for healing and anointing me with oil and brought me before God in a way that I was too distant to do for myself. That felt like the start of a turning point. The doctors and physios I had been seeing had referred me to a neurosurgeon. When I went for the assessment with him, he gave me a clean bill of health and said I could start gymnastics and dance again from the start of 2019. We were so grateful. Not only that, but to my surprise, the school was happy with my academics and were going to let me progress to the new grade with my new friends. As 2019 began, I realized through all the bad things that happened to me, it was God who actually had been carrying me through all of it. That, although he didn't take away the experience, he was right beside me and he is bigger and more in control than I ever knew. And that his love for me is stronger than all the hardships. I felt like I needed to be obedient to his call on my life and be baptized. So in October 2019, I got baptized. It felt like another turning point for me. I changed from gymnastics to focus on training to become a dancer. I was awarded a scholarship to train for Unique Dance Academy in Cape Town. Life seemed so different from just a year ago when there were times that I wondered if I'd ever be able to dance again, let alone travel the world or do it competitively. I know there will still be hardships in my life, but my experience has shown that God cares more than I could ever realize, that He promises to be with me and that He has been faithful through it all and is worthy of my trust and faith. He is the perfecter of my faith. Thank you for letting me share my story with you. It's a beautiful story. Yeah. And um, the next kind of chapter in that story is that Michaela's been chosen to represent South Africa at the World Champs later this year. And so that's an amazing story of how her recovery has led to a wonderful opportunity for her. Um, so as we close the meeting today, we haven't taught fully into healing. There's a lot we could say, but we can't kind of preach this kind of message without creating an opportunity to pray, because we are people who believe in the power of prayer, because we believe in the one who answers prayer. And we've been talking about the good news at last, but it's the good news that lasts. And so that same Jesus that we've been reading about today is present here by his spirit through his people, and we believe he wants to do a healing work in us. And so Ryan's going to come and just kind of close this part of the meeting, and then we're going to create an opportunity for prayer. Thanks, Ryan. Brilliant, Louise. Thank you for serving us so well this morning. I, I just can't, as a leader, but help, uh, can't but see the connections between what we were speaking about last week and coming into what's being spoken about here today. And last week we were speaking about the overlapping of the kingdoms. See, the beauty is that whenever we start and we remind ourselves that God heals, we start with His sovereignty. We start with His sovereignty. And in that overlapping of the ages, in other words, the in-breaking future kingdom age into our current fallen evil age, we see God breaking in. And that's a kingdom that is breaking in. We don't fully understand but we know that we're in between. Not all people are healed of all things. And, and w- even as we're healed of some things, we will go on to age and likely die. Very, very likely die, right? 
That's the, that's the complexity of being in these overlapping ages. Yes, there is a God that is on the move and his kingdom is breaking into the, the here and now. No, that kingdom has not yet fully come. And so we live in an age of sickness and death and decay. And yet we can ask. I love starting with the sovereignty of God in the kind of overlapping of the ages. But I find myself saying we are called in this overlapping of the ages to be those who ask. So while it's ours to ask, as sons and daughters of our good heavenly Father, we ask. And we ask with confidence and we ask with faith because we know God is a God that heals. This week, had the privilege of sitting with some guys and we were busy talking and Terry Virgo, who's here with us from overseas, he was just sharing and he felt to pray for some people to, uh, for back pain that they might be experiencing. And when he did that, we chatted and it was the three of our congregation leaders out of the 11 Common Ground congregation leaders that last year Terry had prayed for. And all three of those guys were either uh, going to um, physio for their, their kind of back pain or they were involved in um, some kind of ongoing tension in their back, that type of thing. And Terry prayed for those three guys this time last year when he was with us. And all three of those guys have not experienced any back pain in the, in the year since then. None of them have been to any doctor or specialist since then. It's been completely removed, completely healed. And this builds our faith that we serve a God that today heals still. We have a family amongst us. I'm not sure if they're here. Their 16-year-old daughter was diagnosed with stage four cancer. And she started treatments. And at one point she was asked to go to a further specialist. And about, I think about a month ago, three, four weeks ago, she went to the specialist. And the specialist said, I'm not sure I'm going to be able to help you because you have a clean bill of health. Stage four cancer to nothing. And God heals today. Guys, I'm not, I'm not sharing these stories to try and hype anything up. I'm, I'm sharing these stories because some people are sitting amongst us with a lack potentially of a courage to step forward because I'm not sure if I can trust this healing stuff. And there are so many other people that do these things wrong and manipulate. And in a sense, it's the person and it's about the gift. No, 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 guys, it's not about the gift as much as about the God who gives gifts to His people. And so today, what we're going to do is we're going to stand. Can I invite you to stand? For most of us in the room, we're going to create an opportunity for us to sing and worship and pray together. Maybe you want to pray for people that, that you know are needing to receive God's healing touch. And we want to create room. If you today are wanting to say, yes, please pray with me. There's a large team of us that would love the opportunity to bring any physical ailment before our Heavenly Father and say, God, won't you bring your healing touch to these bodies now? And we want to invite you as we sing this song, won't you come forward? There's a bunch of us will be in the front here. And won't you come forward? And we want to pray for you. The rest of you be praying for these people. Maybe you want to focus in on the song and, and worship God with us. But let's create an opportunity for the kingdom which is breaking in to break in even now here amongst us while we gathered in the name of the King. Let's do that together.